In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungain, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London. This week, it looks like Christmas won't be coming early or at all for those who wanted a protocol deal nicely wrapped up and laid under the tree. Yes, all the signs are that the talks have hit a deadlock on a number of fronts and are going to drag on into next year. We'll assess why the mood, which was buoyant a few weeks ago, has turned sour and what the hold-ups are. And we'll be hearing from Ireland's Foreign Minister Simon Coveney and Northern Ireland Secretary Brandon Lewis on whether or not Article 16 of the Protocol will be triggered. And as Boris Johnson, Micheál Martin and Emmanuel Macron all issued their own warnings, we'll also ask, is the US holding up Trump-era tariff reforms on US steel exports because of that Article 16 threat? And we'll be hearing from one of the authors of the Irish Maritime Development Office report on that massive shift of Irish freight traffic away from the UK land bridge. But first, I'm going to get in a plug for a bonus podcast we have out this week, which is on an entirely different withdrawal agreement, not really comparable to the withdrawal agreement we normally discuss on Brexit Republic every week, which is the 1921 Anglo-Irish Treaty, which myself and Dr John Gibney of the Royal Irish Academy's Documents on Irish Foreign Policy series discuss. So you can download that. It should be coming to the Brexit Republic podcast platform of your choice. Back in the real world of Brexit business, Sean, to you first, a statement out from David Frost. Significant gaps still remain following the latest talk. I mean, I refer the Honourable Correspondent to last week's statement. And the week before and the week before and all that going back into the mists of time or, well, the mists of this autumn anyway. Yeah, it's it's positioned more or less as it was. Um, let's parse the statement a little bit from Lord Frost saying... Uh, there has been some potential convergence on the medicines issue. Important to note that, but agreement has not been reached. We've been unable so far to consider all of the detail of the EU's proposals in the way we need to for this sensitive, critical and highly technical area where solutions must work in practice and genuinely solve the problems. So some progress on the medicines front uh, but uh, the UK not buying all of it. Now he continues uh, we continue to believe that more progress is needed on customs and SPS arrangements if we are to deal with the fundamental issue of improving the flow of goods between Britain and Northern Ireland. There have been some constructive talks on subsidy control, one of those technical areas we've talked about in the past, but that issue remains unresolved, as does the wider issue of governance. And it says our teams will have intensified talks in the coming days and himself and Vice President Mara Shevchevich will have uh, direct face-to-face or video-to-video, as it now looks, uh, talks uh, on the 10th of December. Right. And 
our position remains as before the statement says that the threshold has been met to use article 16 safeguards so as we said tony at the end of last week's episode same as it ever was but but not quite same as it ever was you've been picking up hints as to that constructive nature of talks where you are in brussels well i think colin uh, we are in a classic sort of standoff situation where there is progress at technical level on customs and uh, sps agri-food but it's again it's being blocked at the political level because on the one hand fundamentally the eu believes that it has made a generous offer with these four papers that were published in in october on medicines customs agri-food and a role for for stormont and businesses in northern ireland and the uk has not yet um reciprocated now what does reciprocation mean well I mean, this this is in the round is all about how you manage risk for goods entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain. As we talked about before, the UK believes that goods that are clearly staying in Northern Ireland should not be checked at all. Goods that are clearly going to the south should be checked and it should be up to traders essentially to be trusted to make sure that things go where they where they should go. And I mean, that's a very simplified way of looking at it. But this is essentially what the command paper sets out. The EU's approach is kind of, the EU has kind of said, OK, we, we get that in principle. But we, first of all, we can't just leave it to traders. We can't we can't simply tr- trust the private sector to do this. Um, th- there must be a system in place that ca- can identify where the risks happen and that if if a risk emerges that say suddenly there's a big spike in you know frozen shrimps coming into to northern ireland from great britain that might be a little bit suspect then you have a system in place you have the border control posts up and running they should be properly staffed there should be a rapid alert system and all of these things according to the eu are just simply not in place so as well as the kind of week on week saying that we're you know there's no progress and we're not there yet there is this fundamental i think standoff whereby the eu is saying look we need to show that you're serious about setting a system in place whereby nice. we can adapt our attitude to risk but it still has to be underpinned by you know infrastructure by data that that the uk holds on customs flows and trade flows and and that's not really there yet so so i I I think that's a way to see this and again it's like who jumps first um and the question as well is often asked by by british officials does does the eu have more up their sleeve i mean in the classic negotiating situation you would imagine that there are more concessions up the eu's sleeve here but they're not going to bring them down onto the table until they see some commitment from the UK on, on those issues. Right. Before I go back to Sean here, the issue that, that he mentioned there, medicines, any further movement on that? Because last week when we were talking about it, it was nothing's agreed till everything's agreed, but maybe a bit more agreed. Do you get to text? Certainly David Frost in his statement that Sean mentioned there believes that they're not agreed. My understanding is that, look, this is the EU changing its own legislation to permit medicines, generic drugs, uh, innovative cancer drugs that are basically sourced in the UK or distributed through hubs in the UK coming into Northern Ireland, they, they'll be fully licensed to do that. So you'd have a free flow of all those medicines that would have been held up in some cases 
by the protocol as was. Now, because this is going to be, this is going to happen because the EU is changing its own legislation, the European Commission believes, well, look, this is, it's up to us how we do that. Now, the, the, the UK has said, well, we, we want some kind of ownership of that process. The EU has said, well, how, you know, how, how are you going to do that? Um, uh, and I think, I think Mara Shevchevic on the EU side has been open to some kind of buy-in from, from David Frost on this. But th- again, this gets down to who jumps first. Certainly the EU believes that if you got medicines over the line, that would, first of all, show ordinary people in Northern Ireland that the EU is serious about their concerns and medicines is a real world issue for a lot of people. And it would also create momentum. Now, I, my understanding is that the, the EU's legislation to permit all of this change and free flow of medicines is ready. What I also heard was that the UK hasn't been given the legal text. However, there is a copy of the legal text in the European Commission office in London and a, a UK official has been invited over to look at it. So obviously some irritation on the UK side that th- th- they haven't been given this final text. But I think it's an indication of the frustration that is felt by Mara Shevchevich because in a way David Frost is essentially holding this up because he doesn't want to give the impression that there is momentum um, and that things are all heading for a deal before Christmas on everything. Uh, because, as we've mentioned before, I think David Frost wants everything to be done in one whole package. Right. Um, so, again, it looks like that the, the legislation is ready. It's just a, a case of when the Commission will publish and say, well, look, we've done our bit. Here's the legislation. So glimmers of light there, Sean. So last week, myself and Tony went full talking heads. This week, it's a little bit more Ian Jury. Reasons to be cheerful at the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference, at least. That was the vibe you were picking up? Well, potentially. I mean, it it looked on the Article 16 front uh, like... uh Again, a reiteration of some of the mood music we've been hearing over the past uh, couple of weeks uh, in relation to Article 16 in particular, where the uh, British, having brought their troops up to the top of the hill, are now actually noticing there's a way back down again from the top of the hill in relation to Article 16. And the line nowadays uh, is, we don't really want to use it at all, uh, but, you know, it's it's part of the treaty it can be used if it has to be used, but we hope it doesn't have to be used. Here's what Brandon Lewis, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, had to say about it on Thursday afternoon after the meeting of the British-Irish Intergovernmental Council. This is one of those bodies set up under the Good Friday Agreement where the British and Irish governments meet formally to uh, try and sort out issues related to Northern Ireland. And in terms of the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, the... Uh, position for us has been, and actually to be specific, Michael said he, he didn't think we would need to um, introduce Article 16 around the fact that we were having these negotiations. Obviously, we, we believe that the conditions were met for Article 16 in the summer. We haven't triggered Article 16 because we w- don't want to. We want to find a negotiated, agreed solution with the EU. That gives certainty. Those conversations are ongoing. I think uh, the, the teams are talking and, and, and in technical conversations all the way through. Mal Sheffridge and David Frost meeting on a pretty much weekly basis, and I think we'll be meeting this week as well. Ultimately, as I say, my position is, as is David's and the Prime Minister's, very much that a uh, agreed solution between us and the EU is the best way forward. But there are substantive gaps between us, um, and if we need to use Article 16 to move things forward, then we will have to do that. We don't want to, and hopefully we can get a positive solution through the negotiations and discussions. Now, Simon Coveney was uh, asked uh, a similar question about the state of uh, relations um, and the talks and the Article 16 process in particular, and he had just had a meeting 
the night before uh, with Lord Frost and uh, here's what he had to say about it. I, I, I met uh, Lord Frost yesterday evening. Um, uh, it was a good meeting actually um, and I think we, uh, we had a good uh, and direct discussion around where the negotiations are at. Uh, and the difficulties, and there are genuine difficulties, I think, and real gaps between the two sides still. Uh, but there is a process underway of dialogue uh, and discussion, uh, and that is where we need to keep it, um, to try to find um, uh, landing zones, if you like, on some of the key outstanding issues, whether that's access for medicines into Northern Ireland and providing guarantees there, uh, whether it's uh, reducing the customs burden or sanitary and phytosanitary checks burden on trade uh, between GB and Northern Ireland uh, to ensure that doing business across the Irish Sea from GB into Northern Ireland is as straightforward as it possibly can be. Um, and I think you know, the truth is that there are serious gaps. There hasn't been a breakthrough moment in the last number of weeks, but I think there has been, uh, I think, a deeper understanding of each other's positions um, um, do I think that all issues can be resolved linked to the protocol by the end of the year? I think that's a very tall order and unlikely to happen. Um, but I think we should still uh, give time and space to the negotiating teams to continue to work through what are difficult issues for both sides. Uh, and I think there's a commitment to doing that. And I think the less we talk about the triggering of Article 16 and the more we talk about trying to find landing zones uh, that both sides can work with in the context of the protocol, uh, and flexibility around its implementation, uh, then I think the better. Because, you know, as I've said before, and others have said also, uh, triggering Article 16, in my view, from an EU perspective, uh, will move us into a new space where we don't want to go. Um, because I think um, that will be a signal that negotiation has failed, uh, or at least in this round has. Um, and I think, um, I think we need to guard against that because, uh, uh, because outcomes based on negotiation in the coming weeks and months would be far preferable to that, uh, 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 to that move into a much more negative and I suspect adversarial space, which is not where we want to go. So uh, the Irish minister there saying that uh, it, he'd had a very good meeting with Lord Frost, um, uh, an official later told me, yeah, that was uh, the case. It's probably the best meeting they've had, uh, although that's probably, uh, admittedly, a fairly low bar uh, in terms of the, the kind of engagement that's been going on there. But, you know, there's a, a friendlier tone, shall we say, even if they're not fixing all of the issues, they're certainly getting more visibility uh, on what the problem areas are and how they might be able to turn those into solutions. But again, Simon Coveney, uh, repeating what he told us on Wednesday, uh, that uh, he doesn't expect a deal uh, to be done on the Northern Ireland Protocol, at least not all aspects of it, by Christmas, and that this looks like it's going to go into the new year in terms of talks. So, yeah, it's bad news if you're looking for a deal mm. before Christmas, but great news for those of us who feared a few weeks ago, as we said in this podcast, that we'd be standing, and by we, I mean I would be standing <laughs> in that right. freezing cold place they call Downing Street, right. uh, waiting for a deal to drop uh, on me hat-trick now of, of three yeah. years in a row of waiting for a deal to drop in Christmas week. Uh, it looks like right. uh, I'm going to be out of here and somewhere warm uh, at that time, and by warm, I mean indoors. Yeah, I seem to remember you discussing the wind in particular in Downing Street and not in the rhetorical sense there was there was some kind of an arctic wind tunnel basically it's the arctic wind outside it seems yes. to, to do a sharp 
right-hand turn as it's <laughs> blowing up th- from the Thames along the east, an easterly wind, and just come roaring straight up Downing Street, and it's freezing. Right, right. Okay, well... Uh, you know that does suggest a level of optimism. It also suggests that the risk of the art of Article 16 being triggered has diminished, widening out the lens internationally as to why that risk might have diminished. Although it's denied by the British government, the Financial Times had a story during the week about a document from the U.S. Commerce Department saying that the issue of tariffs on steel and aluminium was being held in a standstill position at the moment because of the risk of Article 16 being triggered. Who wants to take the the issue first of the background to this? Where did these tariffs come from? Why are they in place? Why is the EU ahead of the queue of the UK? And how much is the risk of Article 16 being triggered stymieing the UK being let off the hook? Well, these tariffs were triggered by Donald Trump um, in 2018. Um, I think he was using some defence legislation or national security legislation to slap 25% tariffs on steel and 10% tariffs on aluminium. And the EU and UK obviously were caught up in those tariffs. Um, And actually that was one of the reasons why one of the anomalies of the Northern Ireland Protocol was suddenly there was going to be tariffs on steel going from the UK into Northern Ireland, and that's just way too complicated to deal with in this uh, podcast. But um, it looks like the EU and US last month reached agreement that those tariffs would be lifted on the 1st of January, but they haven't been lifted on the UK, uh, and this appears now, according to this FT report, to be linked to the UK threatening to trigger Article 16. Now, I've spoken to a number of EU diplomats here who have said that, according to their comrades or colleagues in Washington, that this is true, this is actually uh, can be stood up. Although there is also the issue of the fact that a Chinese company has bought British steel. And in that context, Joe Biden, of course, is on the kind of on a war footing over relations with China and trade, and <clears throat> that may also be part of the calculation as to why uh, they are going slow on lifting those tariffs, which which is hitting UK steel and aluminium industries quite hard. I mean, again, these are very high tariffs, 25% and 10% respectively, um, but it, it does, I suppose, focus the mind in Downing Street that. The Biden administration is looking very carefully at, at the at the Article 16 button and the finger poised above it. Um, although, as Sean will point out, um, there's been quite strong pushback uh, from the UK on this. Right. Sean? Yeah, um, Penny Mordaunt, the um, junior uh, trade minister, stood up in the House of Commons on Thursday um, uh, saying the uh, government, British government didn't accept there was any link to our Article uh, 16 and described it as a false narrative. Um, it's a rather strange description. It's either um, true facts or, or not true facts, but uh, I think false narrative was, was the term she used. It might be true in how some people in the United States feel, but it is a false narrative. Two issues are entirely separate. And uh, Johnson's uh, spokesman uh, adding uh, in a briefing to journalists that uh, they were not aware that the U.S. administration was linking uh, the two issues, so uh, they uh, pushing back. Uh, they're pushing back against it, uh, as you say. But uh, again, as Tony mentioned, uh, British um, steelmakers uh, are warning of uh, further losses if they don't get this lifted, because the EU uh, are going to get their tariffs lifted on the first of January. 
uh, and uh, the Brit British producers, no sign of a date for them uh, yet uh, as well. So uh, if it is being held back either because of uh, that Chinese link or uh, because of the Article 16 link, or both, looking great for, for British exporters. Right, right. And the Sinn Féin leader, Mary Lou Macdonald, was over in Washington this week doing the rounds of the Irish-American caucus and meeting various people from uh, Irish America was certainly the clear impression she she got, she said, speaking uh, at a couple of press conferences and to our colleague Brian O'Donovan was that triggering Article 16 would certainly make waves. Uh, in Congress, I haven't heard from Doug Beatty, the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, who was also over in Washington, whether that was the clear impression that was given for him to him, but no doubt uh, that that will come out in time. OK, let's stick with matters international then, Sean. Emmanuel Macron, where does he come into this? Well, he's reported as uh, saying that the Northern Ireland Protocol was an existential question for the European Union and was a matter of war and peace for Ireland. Now, that term war and peace uh, is one that has raised hackles here. Uh, in uh, Britain, and uh, Simon Coveney indeed was asked about it uh, by journalists at the uh, British-Irish uh, Council meeting. Was it appropriate language? Is it not an implicit threat that if the British don't give in uh, on the uh, issues to do with the protocol, uh, that it will mean uh, a, a return to uh, the violence and destruction of the Troubles? And Mr Coveney, of course, uh, playing that down entirely, uh, because it is a sensitive topic um, and also it's a, a, a topic that the Irish government um, don't really want to get into uh, and get involved in and make any kind of explicit links uh, between uh, the risk of violence uh, and uh, problems to do with yeah. Northern Ireland. Uh, on the other hand, we've seen how uh, loyalist groups have been saying because three buses got burnt out in uh, East Belfast that there's a danger of a return to violence. Right. Again, that was... Uh, that well, I mean, in fairness, was, was heavily clamped down on by uh, the Brandon Lewis saying, you know, well, this is just thuggery and people involved in drug dealing and we don't see any uh, yeah. signs of paramilitary violence or anything there. Or although on, on the, this side of the border as well, there were copies of the Irish Times held up with bombed out customs posts by, by Leo Varadkar showing what a border in the island of Ireland could mean as well. So there has been it is, over it, the it, last it's, few it's years definitely a, a bit of it going around. It is. No, it's definitely a, a raw point uh, in uh, any kind of uh, discussions on uh, Brexit. Uh, if there's any kind of suggestions, any kind of, dare we say it, whiff of cordite uh, about the uh, line of attack on uh, the British position on uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol, the British push back very hard uh, on that one. In relation to the French uh, themselves, we've got to look at it in terms of the broader background where we've had that falling out, well, continuing falling out uh, between the British and French governments over a range of issues, more laterally on the migration uh, issue with people coming across the channel in rubber boats and that dreadful tragedy uh, last week. Then there was these report, uh, reported comments, I should say, in Le Canard Enchaîné, the, the satirical newspaper uh, in France, uh, talking uh, where uh, President Macron was allegedly quoted uh, uh, in his conversations with Boris Johnson saying when he talks with me we have an adult uh, discussion but either before or after he hits us with an inelegant blow always the same circus sad to see such a great country governed by a clown and this uh, of course uh, didn't go down too well in Britain either and is further evidence of the deterioration in relations uh, between the two sides there were one or two other um, 
terms of, of uh, endearment used in there, translated roughly as a boar or a knucklehead uh, in relation to uh, what uh, Mr Macron thinks of Mr Johnson. Uh, of course, the Elysee um, has no comment at all to make on uh, com- um, stories that run in the Canar, right. uh, but they're quite entertaining all the same. Right. Do they do the rounds of correspondence in Brussels, these kind of remarks as well, Tony? What kind of waves do they cause uh, where you are? Yeah, I mean, I think there was there was a bit, a bit of chatter about it, but again, it's seen in, in the context of the this kind of strange personal animosity between Boris Johnson and um, and Emmanuel Macron. I mean, I think Macron yeah. has felt that he has this this gift uh, with autocrats or, or populists that he can, you know, grip them by the elbow and 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 bring them in somehow and and disavow them. Of He's the demagogue their, their whisperer. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not that not that we're calling Boris Johnson a demagogue, clearly. <laughs> no, but clearly but not. again, I think I think he has had the notion that he has that kind of knack with people uh, and we saw it up to a point with Donald Trump but then that didn't seem to last and uh, and I think the same could be said for his relationship with Boris Johnson that, that things have kind of you know the scales have fallen off the eyes and and uh, it, it's it's now quite a, a petulant uh, chemistry be- between both sides again the wider context being the French elections next year France having the presidency of the EU and I suppose a general sense in Emmanuel Macron's world that you can't leave the EU and expect life to be better than than what it was in, right. inside, um, and I think that drives a lot of this kind of sentiment. Speaking of the French election, chaps, the man who opens every episode of Brexit Republic is now no more in the competition to be the candidate of the French centre-right party, the, the, the Republicans. Michel Barnier has failed in his bid to become the the next president of France. We'll have two seconds of silence for Michel Barnier. Tony, of course, somebody else who's been having interactions with Boris Johnson is Micheál Martin. Now, it it didn't happen this week, but you've got some kind of an update on on how the interactions have been going between the Taoiseach and the Prime Minister. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a phone call and, you know, people are speculating about what Boris Johnson will do because ultimately it will be his call on Article 16... Now, I think he pushed back on this idea that he wants to keep a confrontational stance on the EU because it suits him domestically and it plays well with the base and and, uh, the tabloids in the UK. Uh, And that's because, uh, you know, he won his landslide election on the back of getting Brexit done. And if the protocol turns out to be this perpetual running sore between Britain and the EU, and there's a threat of tariffs or a trade war, then Brexit, Brexit hasn't been done, and uh, that's that's not really a good look. Um, you know, again, I think there's a view in Dublin that whatever he says about not fully understanding the protocol uh, when it was um, negotiated and the fact that he's not a details man and, and works on slogans, uh, that he does genuinely feel sore about the protocol, about the effect of it, and he feels sore about the increase in, in north-south trade. But I suppose ultimately the view in Dublin is he has to ask himself as a politician, does he want to take the deal that's on the table in January or does he want to go to war uh, with the EU and trigger Article 16, knowing perhaps that the the space for a better deal will just be diminished if Article 16 is triggered uh, right. by definition. 
as Harry Callahan used to ask, is he feeling lucky? Punk. <laughs> Boris Johnson um, may not be feeling lucky, but he, he may also be feeling tired because he's been having a pretty hard year and didn't actually get much holidays, despite a lot of criticisms about him going on holidays. He didn't really get that much time off work. And with all the new COVID wave that's going on now uh, and lots of uh, attacks uh, on his government over sleaze and uh, a Christmas party that may or may not have happened in Downing Street last year when the rest of the country was in lockdown, it's probably not a great time for him to be having a fight with the uh, European Union over trade so it's probably suits him to just keep a lid on this uh, avoid conflict until uh, after christmas um he continues with the usual formula uh, of words uh, in a phone call with the belgian pm alexander de Croo. he said uh, he was clear that uh, the uk wants a consensual solution uh, to the northern Ireland protocol at uh, his preference but that article 16 was a legitimate safeguard mechanism should a new approach not be agreed and that is you know boilerplate you can stamp that one on every phone call that he has uh, with anybody from the uh, eu these days uh, the response to that i guess is is the kind of uh, slightly longer formula that came from uh, t-shirt Michal martin in a speech to eu ambassadors in dublin on thursday and uh, it's quoting his phone call with uh, prime minister boris johnson uh, saying, I said to the Prime Minister directly that the EU, including Ireland, wants a relationship with the UK that's strong and positive and allows us to work constructively, that there are like-minded countries on climate, on security, major trading partners, together with the EU and US, a vital part, the UK that is a vital part of a strong transatlantic partnership. We should be working together. We can resolve the issues confronting us on Brexit and the protocol. As I firmly believe we can, we can turn a new page and move forward into a new dynamic. However, if the UK decides instead to step back from what was agreed in the withdrawal agreement and the trade and, co uh, the trade and cooperation agreement, there should be no doubt that the response of the EU will be united and robust. A negotiated solution is within reach if the political will is there. So that's the message sending via the diplomatic channel uh, to Dublin. Also, one other thing that uh, may indicate some of the uh, thinking on the British side and a possible desire for uh, a, an easier life, an easier relationship uh, with uh, the uh, European Union or the European states. Uh, and that is in relation to that phone call uh, with Alexandre de Croo. And that was uh, the little noted uh, United Kingdom-Belgium joint declaration on bilateral cooperation, which popped out uh, on Wednesday afternoon. And uh, there the two countries um, say, you know, we're very strong trading partners and we've got a new chapter of a deeper bilateral cooperation. Uh, and one of the things that they uh, stressed right at the very top about how COVID-19 had challenged global supply chains and demonstrated the uh, need to improve resilience. And it says, we'll play our part, including through further work to facilitate efficient customs processes at the border for the movement of accompanied and unaccompanied goods and through the UK-Belgium Border Industry Facilitation Committee uh, within our respective legal frameworks. So they're committing to do uh, better on the flow of goods between uh, Belgium and Britain, uh, a, a major uh, supply of, of goods there. Uh, they also talk about a lot more scientific and uh, technical cooperation uh, and research collaboration, particularly through Horizon Europe. Uh, they talk about future electricity interconnectors, and they also uh, talk a lot about security, um, saying um, one thing that I thought was quite interesting 
uh, saying we recognise that the NATO-EU strategic partnership is essential for the security and prosperity of our nations and the Euro-Atlantic area. That's quite interesting because the British, if you remember, uh, said they weren't going to have anything to do with a security cooperation arrangement with the European Union, that they would run everything through NATO, uh, but now there seems to be some uh, softening of that position or change of that position and recognition of the uh, EU-NATO uh, closer uh, alignment which is going on at the moment. It, it's a reality that they can't really run away from, so they're starting to de-escalate some of the more hostile language that they've had to that in the past. Right. Tony, you mentioned there that Boris Johnson was feeling somewhat sore about the movement of uh, the movement of trade since Brexit of, as a result, as he sees it, of the, of the Northern Ireland Protocol. You've been having a look at that in a bit of detail with the Irish Maritime Development Office. Yeah, that's that. right. Yeah, so so the the IMDO as they're called bring out um, quarterly reports on uh, units of freight coming in and out of the island of Ireland to the UK and to Europe, the single market, and so on. And their report, which came out this week, showed a fifty five percent increase in freight going direct to the European single market using ferry links from. Uh, Dublin, uh, Rosslare, Cork and so on uh, going direct to France and Belgium uh, and this is a clear I suppose repudiation of the land bridge and so you've had a concomitant uh, slump in trade uh, in in volumes of trade going into places like Holyhead and, and Pembroke uh, so, so that is uh, I suppose again crystallising evidence of the impact of the protocol and Brexit. Uh, and also another salient uh, finding was that Northern Ireland ports, whatever about the protocol, are actually booming at the moment because trucks that would normally have used the Dublin to Holyhead route uh, because it's quicker and uh, it provides a more propitious kind of rest time for drivers. Uh, Northern companies are avoiding that, uh, that route uh, because of the the checks and controls and are using northern ports instead going direct to Carn Ryan or, or Liverpool. Um, I've been talking to Daniel Fallon Bailey who's an economic advisor with the Irish Maritime Development Office. Welcome to the podcast Daniel. Can you just tell us what the IMDO does and, and what it's about? So the IMDO is the Irish government agency that provides support to national and international maritime business in Ireland. I guess that Brexit in itself would have been a seismic, if not sort of existential event for Irish ports. Um, were, were there predictions done before things took effect on the 1st of January this year? And, and have those predictions been borne out or... Have things surprised you in, in the data that, you, that you've gathered? Really, I, I suppose as we entered into 2020, attentions would have been thinking about Brexit quite closely. And then, obviously, for obvious reasons, was interrupted quite heavily with COVID-19. So once that first wave passed and we had a, a significant downturn in freight traffic through um, Republic of Ireland ports for that Q2 period, and once that passed in Q3, we had a resurgent period during the uh, phased reopenings that began in the first week of June. After that passed to the system around uh, the beginning of September, attentions really turned to Brexit at that point. And from October onwards, we could see a surge in traffic 
particularly on routes to Great Britain. And we understood this through our cooperation with the operators and through the data that we were receiving to be the beginning of a stockpiling period. And at that time, a lot of the exporting bodies and, and a lot of Irish importers and exporters were concerned about how they would get access to EU markets at that time. Um, as as uh, January 1st, 1st approached, we could see some uh, capacity coming on stream that was for direct routes. And we understood that there would be significant demand for uh, capacity to direct into European ports. So we expected that more of this would come on in, in January 1st. And just in those couple of weeks before, a surge of capacity did come on. We expected this to happen because it, operators will follow the demand. If there's demand for uh, routes and connectivity uh, that bypasses the Great British ports, then they will satisfy it because it was within their interest to do so. And they certainly did that. And the capacity to EU ports roughly doubled in the period from just before 2020 and into the, the first few months of 2021. And you, you, we also saw um, surges on in low, low container traffic as well, which is certainly in the conversation when we talk about access to Great Britain, to European ports. So to some extent, we did expect to see a surge in capacity. Um, and also we expected a, a significant drop off in the early part of 2021 because of that stockpile that took effect in the last three months of 2020, which was so significant that it was it had it had surpassed any um, volumes of freight traffic that we'd seen through ROI ports before. And so definitely we expected a, a, a significant decline in, the, in Q1 2021, which happened. Now, on top of that as well, we had a significant and strict lockdown during that time. So that suppressed things even further. So once that passed through the system and we got into about March or April, we saw, started to see what we would look at as more normal um, in a post-Brexit trading environment. So that Q1 period really distorted things with the lockdown and the effect of the stockpile. Once that passed, we, we have seen things plateau and stabilize a little bit in, in what we understand now to be the, the new normal as it stands at the moment. Obviously, there's still significant uncertainty and the market is very dynamic, very competitive at the moment. But the, the overall figure that you quoted, I think that's been picked up in, the, in, in reporting on this is that um, the volumes of goods going direct from Ireland to the EU on, on these new ferries direct to, to European ports, that's increased by 50% in, in the past six months. Is, is that kind of in line with your projections? Well, yes. So we saw this very early on in, in 2021. We saw um, the, 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 the significant growth in the EU traffic. So the way you could really look at it is from 2018 and 2019 are good benchmarks for row row traffic. If we're just talking about roll on roll off, which is the the the, the ferry services with uh, truck and trailers that we see on our roads. So if we just look at 2018 and 2019, we had about 1.2 million units per year across Dublin, Cork, and Rosslare. Now, in 2020, we had that again, which was a significant achievement for the ports, and we're on track to, to, to get to that point again. Now, the configuration of that 1.2 million is significantly altered now. We would have usually had approximately 1 million units going over and back to uh, Great British ports, and then the remaining 200,000, and I'm rounding to a certain extent here, the remaining 200,000 to EU ports. That looks like it now will be 800,000 or 
or there thereabouts to Great British ports and 400,000 or just under it to EU ports. So we've seen a 20% or so decline in GB traffic and then a doubling of the EU traffic. So <clears throat> GB ports are still a significant factor within that 1.2 million, but it has switched to a, a two-thirds, one-third um, uh, share and and that's when we when we look at this market over time they're very very stable we don't see these shifts happen um, to that extent in a year we we see small incremental changes because the market is so stable because yeah. it's relied on so much so that's that's the configuration that we've seen now yeah and I mean the, so this is clear evidence that truck drivers are turning away from the UK land bridge but. Even with with that, it's been said that the land bridge is still a very important option for certain kinds and categories of of goods. Um, do you think that it is still an attractive option for people uh, to say in the in the cold chain or just in time uh, model of of delivery, uh, or are are people now really looking at direct ferry sailings as 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 the most viable option? What we would always say to that is it really depends on the importer or exporter and the, and the business that you're in. The, the importers and exporters in Ireland will look at all their options. And the, the, the best thing we can do is provide a suite of the, the full suite of options that are available to them to get their goods to and from their markets. And if the Lambridge, the Lambridge is always going to be the quickest route because it is, is geographically, it, it will be quicker. And we've seen a, a major Irish operator um, put on uh, a route between Dover and Calais, which is a sign of, of confidence in the Lambridge going forward. There will always be importers and exporters that make use of the Lambridge. It has significantly reduced in 2021, but for all intents and purposes, it is still open, it, it's still working, and it may be, it, you know, Brexit may have been uh, a, a sign for, for people to, to look elsewhere and they have found other routes. And as, we've, as I've mentioned, the market is very competitive and dynamic and the operators compete for different business. And certainly these direct routes have done well, but both options are available and it really depends on the importer and exporter and what they require. Right. Um, I suppose we have to bear in mind that the UK still has not installed its suite of mm -hmm. customs and agri-food checks and regulatory checks it seems that that's going to be staggered over the next year could that be another chilling effect once that regime takes effect next year we, we would expect to see if, if it followed the same patterns as before we we would expect to see possibly a, a stockpiling effect beforehand again and possibly um and then a decline after that, and we would average out over the two, the before and after, and then we would probably be at the same amount of goods. So that's one pattern that we saw beforehand. One thing I would say about this is that the shipping operators have faced considerable uncertainty in the last 18 months, and they've overcome significant challenges. The more this um, these new arrangements for Great British Ports are, are pushed out, the more time they have to deal with what is in place at the moment. So in terms of adaptability, they've shown themselves to be considerably adaptable and resilience is an, a topic that comes up all the time when we're, we're discussing this because the market is, is significantly resilient and it will, it will overcome that again, not to say, not to diminish the challenge that they face and it will be yet another challenge on top of all the others that they face. But on, in terms of the freight traffic, 
the patterns we may see a, a surge beforehand and a tapering off afterwards. But in terms of, of whether or not it can be overcome, considering the challenges that have been overcome, I would I would envisage that it will be it will be adapted to. Yeah. I mean, there's also been the argument that the direct ferry sailing to Europe is attractive to companies because drivers can rest on the on, on the ferries for, for a good stretch um, that might compensate for for the longer journey time. Uh, is, that, is that something of a factor, do you think? Well, the biggest factor that the direct services have had is that they've accelerated the trend towards unaccompanied Roro, which is unaccompanied roll-on, roll-off traffic, where whereby a, a, a container is dropped at a port, it, it travels on the vessel and is collected by a local haulier on the far side. Now, direct EU traffic will make disproportionate use of unaccompanied um, of that unaccompanied shipping mode. So with the increase in EU traffic, we've seen an acceleration of unaccompanied traffic as well. So unaccompanied traffic now takes up 70% of all of that Roro um, traffic in the Republic of Ireland, and the, the other 30% is accompanied. Accompanied would accompanied traffic would be quite low on the direct routes, but it is quite high on, on some services that are direct but overall, as a, as a big picture for EU traffic, a company makes up quite a small amount of that. The other salient finding was a big increase in traffic going out of Northern Ireland ports. And that's because of the difficulty of shipping goods via Dublin. Can you tell us about th those findings? So over the years um, in our engagement with Holliers, we would have understood that a number of we would have had approximately um, about a million units through Dublin port every year. We would have understood that a chunk of that was Northern Irish hauliers making use of the very frequent services over to Liverpool and over to Hollyhead. So, you know, that may that has appeared to have transferred back to Northern Irish ports. So it is still Northern Irish trade and intra-UK trade. But it, it has made it has moved back to Northern Irish ports and has spread um, between Belfast, Larne, and Warren Point. So that was always Northern Irish trade that Dublin was benefiting from, and and now it appears that a chunk of that, if not all of it, has moved back to Northern Ireland. Daniel Fallon Bailey, there, the Irish Maritime Development Office. Let's look ahead to the coming week. What's coming up on your radar, Sean? It's just more of the same column, the gaps remaining. Let's see if anything gets bridged. They're supposed to have another video conference, uh, as we assume it's going to be in these COVID times, between Shevchevich and Frost on the 10th. And let's see if anything tumbles out of that. But in terms of Brexity things, no, it's all rather right. quiet, I'm afraid. Right, you're not selling the next episode to the listeners there, Sean. But anyway, Tony, can you do any better on that? Can we have a rise on, on that particular tone? Well, there's always fish, uh, which which always gives us plenty of, um, of meat and drink, uh, to mix my metaphors uh, for the podcast. On the 10th of December, which is the date of that meeting Sean mentioned, that's the deadline for France and the UK and the European Commission to reach a deal on fishing licenses for French small boats, 12 metre boats, accessing the waters around Jersey and the the 6 to 12 mile zone off the UK coasts. That's of course been a highly toxic uh, issue for France and the UK. So the deadline is the 10th of December. We'll see if they can get a deal and if not, what, what happens next? Otherwise, yeah, there's going to be 
Eurozone ministers meeting in, in Brussels on, on Monday, ECOFIN on Tuesday, uh, European finance ministers. But again, um, not a huge uh, part of that agenda, if at all, will be on Brexit. So again, as Sean said, the technical talks continue and we'll see how they evolve. Right. Well, next next Monday is the centenary of the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty in 1921. So here's the second plug of this episode for that other bonus podcast. So if you want to save that episode till the 6th of December, you can do that. But for any of you who like to listen to this podcast when you're out for a walk, go for a second walk on Sunday and get that one in as well if you haven't listened to it already. All right, that's it from me, Colm O'Munga, an RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, RT's Correspondent in London. And from me, Tony Connor. RT's Europe editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.